We're back to the Neil Haley Show here on the Total Celebrity Segments, Caregiver Dave Celebrity Segment. And I'm excited to welcome the program, Caregiver Dave Nassani. Dave, how are you? What's up, man? Hey, how you doing? Another beautiful day in L.A. Oh, yeah. And this guy and I are, I don't, I think he is a bigger sci-fi nerd than I am. So <laughs> I'm excited to have on the program Murr from Impractical Jokers and a guest, James E. Murray, author of The Stowaway. So you have two characters then, James, right? Yeah, I, I, I think as humans, we all have multiple characters, you know, I, I have more, I have multiple personalities. So yes, you can totally yeah. help me on that one. Okay. Yeah. Can you be my therapist when it comes to my multiple personalities? No, you know, I can play one on TV, but no, I'm not qualified in any way. <laughs> so, you know, and it's interesting. We talked last time about one of your other books. How many books have you written? Uh, well, The Stowaway is our fifth book. It just came out a few days ago. And we have uh, three more coming out next year, a kid's book series called Area 51 Interns, which is a great, fun kids, you know, 10 to 12, uh, 8, 8 to 12 year old read, you know. So the total number of books you've written is about eight now? Uh, it'll be eight, uh, but we have, uh, well, I guess nine, because we have another one that we haven't announced yet coming out in December uh, as a little surprise for fans. And then, um, and then we're about to pitch a, a tenth book uh, this fall. <laughs> so he has the greatest life, uh, Murr does, because the fact he built a show that with his friends, and then he got to do what his passion was, Dave, that maybe wouldn't have the success that he has as a writer, Dave, because of his brand. Is that interesting? Brand, brand builds everything, doesn't it, Dave? As we talked sure about. Sure does. Sure does. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I wrote the first book, Awakened, in 2004, but I had no brand. I had, I, I naively thought I could just send it in publishers and they would get published. It didn't. <laughs> it got returned to me unopened. The only people who read the first book six, 18 years ago was Q and my mother. <laughs> and they both loved it, but I had to, uh, uh, you know, get on Jokers. And we had to create the TV show and uh, uh, it took 15 years to get the book published. And then it wow. hit one on international bestseller list and everything like that, but has led to this entire literary career, but a long time coming. Man. Look at that. A 15 year overnight success. Good for exactly you. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so did you know you were a writer before you wrote your first book? Uh, you know, I wrote the first book on a dare. I wrote a short story and I sent it to my, my buddy and he called me up like a half hour later and said, this is a novel. You should, what happened before or after this is really good. And so I wrote the book around a single short story. And that led to the Awakened Trilogy, which led to all the other subsequent books, which are different. They're standalone books. But um, yeah, I mean, I always wanted to be a writer, too, as well as a comedian on TV. Um, I went to school for writing. Uh, I have a degree from, uh, in writing from Georgetown and always dreamt of one day being an author as well. So, yeah, it was kind of cool. <laughs> and what do you say to authors that, you know, get first get started? Just write? Especially look how many people write books every year, publish books, yeah. self-published, any type of publishing genre. What, what, what advice would you give them? I mean, don't suck is a good one. Like the book, <laughs> should, you know, at first the book should be good. You know, so I guess the question is, are you a good writer? If so, stick with it, you know? And I, I guess the, the, there's so many more avenues to publish now than there were 15 years ago, even 10 years ago, you know? Uh, now, I, I mean, self-publishing through the Amazon platform is completely viable and a great way to, if you have a platform, if you have a fan, can build a fan base or price the right marketing and pricing strategy, there's more ways than ever to put out your creative work, you know? Yeah. And there's so many ways to write a book today. I mean, today is the best time to be writing a book. How long does it generally take you and what method do you use? Are you doing it all by yourself? Good. You have other people helping you out? 
every book is different. The stowaways a really interesting, weird, unusual story of how we sold it. It does not happen like this usually, but uh, I'll be honest. We got a little drunk at lunch with the uh, publisher. Uh, we, we took him out to lunch. I treated. And, uh, and at the, uh, during the, the, the lunch, uh, I said to uh, our editor, I said, what are you interested in? Tell me what you like. And he said, yeah, I don't know. You know, I haven't seen anything about a cruise ship. And I said, huh. And just spontaneously, while drunk in the moment, I pitched him the idea. I said, how about a, a serial killer on board a cruise ship? And the juror that acquitted him two years earlier is on board. And it's up to her to stop him before he kills again. And he's like, like it was totally off the cuff, inspired by whiskey kind of conversation. And, uh, and he said, I've never heard. That's a great idea. And then we created the idea on the subway ride home back to my old apartment. And, uh, and then a week later, sent in a summary for it and they bought it. That was it. So it yeah, doesn't. Brilliant. Matter. Brilliant. Let me write that down. Get yeah. publisher drunk. Okay. <laughs> you got to get in front of the publisher first, right? Because that's <laughs> yeah. the big thing. And James, 15 years ago, you couldn't get in front of publishers. They would laugh at you, right? It yeah, not, it's, not... yeah. It does help having, um, you know, uh, being on TV. Yeah, platform. It does help. I'll be honest. Yeah. And is that in most of your people who buy your book, do you think they're fans of yours or do you think you have a mixture? I think, it, uh, yes and no. I mean, you know, uh, yeah, I think it starts that way usually uh, is that somebody knows us or something like that. And, and uh, you know, Harper Collins did the Awakened Trilogy. Uh, Blackstone did uh, Don't Move. This is St. Martin's Press. And uh, the, the kids book series is Penguin Random House. So I think it always starts with um, them knowing the show, being fans of the show. And that's kind of like the in. But, but at the end of the day, it's still got to be a good book. You know, it can't, it doesn't matter how popular you are, how successful the platform, it still has to be good. So that goes back to my first uh, suggestion for a writer out there. Don't suck. <laughs> and what do you say if they suck? Find another thing to do, right? If you heard no. me sing right now, Murray'd say, please don't sing. That just I, go, I, I, go or take some classes focus, and learn no, how to no, be. No, no. I, said, no sure. I say focus on your talent and become the very best at it and continue to grow through it. So focus on what you're great at, not focusing on things that you're mediocre at just because you have everyone has their talent. And that's a great point. So now I guess, Murr, when you're thinking about this book, a, a goal for all of them would be as a writer for them to become movies, right? Sure. Did you say? Yeah, I think uh, we, all of our books that we write uh, are, are meant to be adapted into film or TV, right? That we, we write very cinematically. Uh, so when you read our books, it's a fast read. It's like reading an episode of the TV show 24. It's got cliffhanger, cliffhanger ending after ending. Uh, it's got m big visual movie moment scenes that stick with you long after the book, uh, you finish the book. So like in, in The Stowaway, what The Stowaway is about is a, a woman named Maria Fontana, who is a juror on a serial killer case of the century. She, uh, she can't find it in herself to vote guilty and the guy goes free. Two years later, she's on a transatlantic cruise with her twin kids and her fiance and halfway across the Atlantic, three days in any direction from land or help, kids start disappearing on the boat in the same way they did on the serial killer case. So she starts to wonder, did I let a killer go free? Is he on board? Is it a copycat? Or is there something far more sinister going on? And she's literally the only person on board that can possibly stop him and has the inside knowledge of the case that can stop him before he kills again. It's a great read. But in the stowaway, I'll give you an example. Uh, there's a scene that I, my favorite scene, my favorite chapter in the book, it is super cinematic and it's terrifying and it's so simple, which I think is, uh, a key ingredient in, in horror is the, the simpler the crime, the, the 
the more terrifying it is and how easy it is to do and pull off. So there's a scene, uh, uh, there's a, uh, a basketball court in the back of the ship, uh, just like the Joker's Cruise. We modeled the ship after the Impractical Joker's Cruise, you know, uh, <laughs> the actual Norwegian uh, cruise line ship. And so there's a basketball court in the back of the ship. And late at night, it's like 11 o'clock at night, a kid goes down to play, sh to shoot some hoops alone. And, uh, and unbeknownst to him, uh, a German comes up, a, a killer comes up, the killer on board, and uh, asks if he wants to dunk the ball. And he's like a 10-year-old kid. He's, and so he's going to lift him up so he can dunk. He can reach the rim, right? And, uh, and he lifts him up. The kid takes the shot. And then he just doesn't let go and carries him right to the edge of the railing. And gone he goes. It's so simple, a murder. And so it's everyone's worst nightmare, especially a parent on a cruise ship. And it was, the chapter will stick with you for the rest of your life. I promise you every time you go on a cruise ship. And it's like, scenes like that are meant to be movie moments, you know? Uh, yeah. So they, we, we write that into every single book, those kind of moments. And um, our last book, don't move just got adapted into a screenplay and will be a movie. So there you go. Wow, Good for you. Yeah. The screenplay is great. It's really uh, good. I want to talk about the 15 years that you were trying to get uh, discovered did you, there are so many options. Did you choose to uh, self-publish? I mean, what did you do during those 15 years? Did you just give up and try to work on something else? Become a star, right? Yeah. Uh, well, along the way, uh, I wrote the novel and it you know, didn't go anywhere at first, uh, Awakened. Uh, and then, and then of course, 15 years later, it hit number one on the international bestseller list, you know, so... But uh, what I did was I uh, then started selling TV shows. I got a job in TV development and I did that for a decade. Uh, so my job was literally to create and pitch TV shows uh, for a production company, the company that makes Impractical Jokers. And along the way is my, uh, in my career as a TV developer, that's when we created Jokers and I pitched it for my job and, and sold it uh, and worth the treatment for it and everything like that and shot sales tape. And so that's what I did for a decade that led up to Impractical Jokers. So your advice to uh, aspiring authors is if this isn't working, try something else, may come back to it. Yeah, there, there's no uh, there's no good book or no real book on how to make it in the business or, you know, what I mean, there's not because uh, the lesson is that there's a million ways to get to the same destination. You know, and you're and how do you feel that you did it? Like, especially looking at your friends and how you guys created this show. How do you think, you said there's no way of making this, but there's so many different ways to make it. What do you think was that big break that made it so that you got discovered? If I knew back then what I know now, I think we would have gotten on TV in our mid-20s instead of our mid-30s. You know, we're 45 now. We've been on TV 11 years. Uh, but uh, I, I would have immediately out of college started pitching TV shows to production companies, would have had some options, then would have gotten a job in TV development a decade earlier. Uh, and, uh, and it would have led to maybe not jokers it might've led to a different show, but that's how we got our hour in. I would do the same thing, just have 10 years more hair, uh, and started, started 10 years earlier, you know? And, and I like, <laughs> I like when you say that specifically, it's not, it's an important part of being discovered is being connected to the right people and meeting the right people and learning what they're looking for. Right. It's yeah. not, it's, and having talent, talent's definitely part of it. Yeah. That. Jokers was a calculated, uh, creative choice. We, uh, I was in working in development and I had heard from meeting from pitching lots of different networks at the time in like 2010, that hidden cameras coming back, Justin Bieber relaunched uh, punked and a couple other networks were trying hidden camera again. And they were all saying the same thing. What is the new version of a hidden camera show? What, how can it be done differently than candy camera or punked or, and so uh, the guys and I literally got together that night and I said, look, this is what I'm hearing from networks. 
I think I can sell a show like this. What, what, what can we come up with? And the four of us were not pranksters. We didn't, you know, we, we, you know, like to embarrass each other, uh, like in our personal lives. Like we always did stuff like that, but we weren't like jackass or anything like that. So we came up with our spin on the format, which is the joke being on us instead of on the public. There is no reveal like in a hidden camera show. Ah, you just got pranked. We're the ones getting pranked. We we're throwing each other under the bus on purpose uh, and forcing us to improvise, which we're an improv group uh, uh, for the public's uh, enjoyment. So the public is just there to witness our embarrassment and that spin on a hidden camera format uh, plus our natural chemistry as uh, best friends was enough to give the show legs, you know. Uh, how involved did your publisher get involved in the um, in the promotion? Everyone says, oh, don't count on your publisher to promote it. You've got to promote it yourself. So where was the ratio of promotion from you and or your publisher? Well, I mean, you know, gosh, we, we've got uh, a lot of fans over the many years on social media and things like that. So obviously a, a lot of the promotion comes from self-generated, you know what I mean? And, which is one of the reasons why they like working with us is, sure. is what the platform I bring to the table that's different from a probably a typical author. Uh, but I mean, that being said, the, you know, the publisher does a great job. They, they're, they're excellent. You know, they, um, uh, every publisher I've worked with has, has really kind of risen to the challenge of uh, thinking outside the box. We do crazy promotions, crazy things. We do a, a virtual book launch for, you know, hundreds of fans and around the world. And, uh, and then we do in sign in person book signings with, you know, five, 600 people in a bookstore. It's, it's, Wow. It's wild. You know, it, it's uh, they, they kind of go with it really well. And they they lend the the infrastructure and the, the support that we need to make it all happen. Now, let's talk about the, the stowaway. And you talked about portions of it. Is there sci fi to this? What's the sci fi to this? Because I no, know not so is not sci fi at all. No, not, not, not sci fi at all. I thought I was reading that. Oh, no. So not at all. But you're a writer oh, of sci fi, but no sci fi. There was no robots that came in at the end. There's of the movie. no no yeah. The stowaway is a mystery thriller. It is uh like Silence of the Lambs, That's you know. Stephen King. Yeah, <laughs> it is, it's not uh, the, the Awakened trilogy is sci-fi thriller. Don't move is horror, pure horror, and the stowaway is mystery thriller. Okay, so here's quick questions: favorite horror movie, favorite oh. sci-fi movie. Oh, it's on on my desk somewhere. Okay, favorite <laughs> horror movie of all time. Uh, the the descent, uh, which is so good, uh, and I have the book right above my desk here somewhere. Uh, the descent is a great, great th- a horror. Uh, if you haven't seen it, check it out. Uh, but but also aliens. Oh man, you know, Alien and Aliens are fantastically good. I just watched uh, Malignant last week, and that was great too, man. That was really good. I was very happy with it. Uh, I think it's the best, uh, you know, horror movie of the year for sure. Uh, but I would say uh, either Aliens or The, the Descent. It's favorite horror, favorite horror movies. What about and sci-fi? Well, Aliens is sci-fi for sure. Sci-fi, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, probably my favorite sci-fi horror movie, even more than Aliens, is probably Event Horizon. Okay. All right. Well, you're, you're real, a real genius. I mean, usually somebody has one genre, they stick with it. But yeah. you can, oh, what do you want? Oh, yeah, I can do that. Yeah, you know, we like switching genres a bit. Uh, the, the, the Stowaway is the broadest category book for sure. Like it's, it is in the mystery section of a bookstore, not in the sci-fi, not in the horror section, you know? So I like that. I like being in, in different uh, book kills, you know? <laughs> being a sci-fi guy, are you going to be one of the people that goes to space first? No, not, no. Not, no. You, in like five, 10 years, you're going to be going to Mars or the moon. 
No, I, I will not. No, I, no I, desire, I'm ter- huh? I, could, I, I didn't even want to go skydiving, much less, uh, <laughs> you know, I'll show you on my desk. I don't know if you can see behind, but there's a, a um, you know, a proton pack from Ghostbusters. There's a DeLorean. And then do you guys recognize this? No, I don't. What is that? The movie Krull. Oh my gosh. You're this yeah. is this the greatest movie weapon other than a lightsaber. The Kroll Glaive, they call it. You have oh, tons of collections, weapon. and you, you're a Star Wars guy too. But no, you're not going. You're not going to space anytime. Soon. I will not. I, 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 if I could transport into a future where Star Trek was real, I would go to space. But I want to be on the Enterprise with a, you know, a replicator. I want to have a holodeck. You know, that future I'll jump into. Not going on a, you know, uh, the uh, Elon Musk adventure. What's it? The Blue Origin, whatever. Whatever the ship's called. Yeah, not yeah. happening to you. You'll, have, you'll wait. You'll wait to like when in your like seventies or eighties to maybe whenever we are inhabiting all over the place. You know, it, and it, then you'll. It, go. I tell you what they say that uh, you know, uh, flying cars and space travel is always twenty years away. It's been twenty years away for the past you know thousand years. <laughs> so, uh, space, I'll tell you, is hap- gonna it's happening, and we'll have to definitely talk about that in our time if we ever get a chance. Where are you located? You're in LA. Uh, no, I'm in Princeton, New Jersey. I live uh, New Jersey. Okay. Yeah, we show, uh, in the New York area. We'll have to, whenever I'm in that area, we'll, we'll definitely do that. All right. So Dave finishes up the show with a caregiving question. So we've gone everywhere in this conversation from sci-fi to horror to just, hey, I'm multiple personalities. But here's Dave's oh. question. Oh, wow. I could see a horror sci-fi flick that has to do with caregivers. Anyway, my wife had a stroke 25 years ago. We grieved for a couple of years. We reinvented ourselves. We almost broke up, but now she's an amazing person, like a Martha Stewart Wonder Woman rolled into one. She lost uh, feeling on one side of her body, paralyzed. She's speech impaired. And yet we go around uh, helping caregivers to survive. 30% of them die before their loved ones do from the stress. I've spoken on stages all over the world, just got back from London, speaking at the London Stock Exchange. I've been on 50 TV shows, just sharing our message of hope to people, you know, just don't do what I did because I broke every rule in the book. So my question to you, you know, I believe that uh, everyone is either going to become a caregiver or need a caregiver. It's inevitable. It's coming. It's that tsunami on the horizon. Uh, How has caregiving affected your life? Uh, You know, one of the uh, main reasons I uh, wanted to write a book and I started writing books was um, probably because I saw my father always wanted to be a, a, an, an author and uh, he is a few credits short of a master's in, in writing wow. and he got drafted and had to then after, after being in the military, he then had to provide for our family and uh, he never got to it. He had to get a job and never got to it. And unfortunately his, his Alzheimer's is so advanced at this point. He can't, so he can't do it. And, um, and I think I, I, that always stuck with me. That is something that it was a dream of his. He never got to do. Um, and when I talk about, it, I get a little bit caught up in, in, um, in it that, you know, that he unfortunately can't read my books anymore. And so when he sees, he sees the, his, his, he has the same name, right? He sees his name on the books and he thinks that he wrote it. You know, it's, a. Uh, um, I think that's one of the main reasons I, I keep writing uh, is, uh, you know, just kind of like a dream that he never got to do himself. And, uh, you know, gosh, what a, I have nothing but the greatest respect for, for your story and, and, and your life and what you do and what you do and, and speak to people about around the world. Um, yeah, I think every family is, you know, I agree entirely. Every family is 
dramatically affected by this. And um, it's something we deal with on a daily basis. My mother deals with it on, on a daily basis. And uh, thank God for the, uh, the TV show. It has uh, put me in a, in a position that I'm able to help out much more than I ever thought I would be able to. Yeah. Um, and a typical family is able to. Um, but, uh, you know, we deal with it in our own ways. And as a family, we try to, uh, you know, <sighs> tough. It's very tough, man. Hey, but well, Jay, so I how much of your success did your uh, father was he able to see? Um, the first year or two, you know, and he's been on a couple episodes of the TV show. You know, he, he can't do it anymore. But the last time we put him on TV was maybe six, seven years, seven, seven, seven years ago. Well, um, I know he's very proud of you. Yeah, yeah, he was there for the premiere, and he, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, it was you, it was, yeah, You're a good character. I, I was just looking the other day at photos from the premiere party uh you know a decade ago is coming up the uh the show premiered we started filming in 2010 but it premiered 10 years ago in about a month or two and uh, i was looking through photos of, of the whole family together back then but yeah it's uh yeah i'm working on my fourth book uh i'm, I'm an author as well and uh yeah. first book has to do with caregiving so caregiverdave.com yeah all right we're live Everyone needs to check that out. But Murr, we appreciate it. And I tell you, you really motivate us each and every day to go out there and do things. And in, in the, the, the American dream, the American story, what you've been able to accomplish and with your friends, it's got to feel so amazing, isn't it? Yeah, it's uh, been a fun ride, man. It's uh, really has been very, uh, uh, you know, I hope you guys like the stowaway when you read it. Uh, you'll love it, I promise you. And uh, I, I hope it affects you in a good way. <laughs> all right. So best place is available. Amazon, all those different places. You have a website too. Amazon, Barnes and Noble, of course, any your local bookstores will have a so by the hour long off the cuff Q and a with uh, my co-writer and I, Darren and I, which is really good. And then if you want an, uh, an autographed copy, just go to meetmer.com M E E T meet and you com, And I'll send one from my house right to your house. All right, Mer, we appreciate it. Thanks again. Catching up next book. I look forward to talking to you again. Take care. You got it, guys. Take care. All right. Time. All right. That was the Caregiver Dave Celebrity segment. Take care. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Neil Haley Show and the special edition of uh, Searching for Integrity and also Embracing the Abyss. John Smith is the host of Searching for Integrity, and he's wrote, written the book Embracing the Abyss. Again, a crime story that's amazing. And we continue to go and uh, talk more. And what chapter are we on next, John? The chapter next is the. Uh... Criminal Code, Chapter 16. The Criminal Code, by the way, Neil, this can, this can make or break anybody's, um, let's say, argument with respect to where to go, what to do. It's really difficult. Okay. The Criminal Code. All right, I'm ready. So let me know when you want me to go. Yeah, I'm ready. Let's get going. Look forward to hearing this. Okay. In March 1988, I pleaded guilty to one felony count based upon a two-part proffer containing an offense and an The offense, on or about December 31, 1985, at the direction of a Vernon senior officer, John Smith arranged for Vernon's subsidiary, Dondi Group, to pay on behalf of the delinquent DRPR buyers, borrowers, $2,610,000 in interest due on the delinquent DRPI loans, thereby making the loans current as of December 
1985. The Vernon senior officer directed Smith to make the $2 million interest payment from funds designated as a Dondi Group investment in Dondi Group subsidiary Dondi Properties. In fact, the payment at that time was not an investment, but an additional loan to the DRPI borrowers. By using, in effect, the uh, Vernon's own funds to make the DRPI borrowers current, Smith, although not the officer responsible for the preparation of Vernon's quarterly report to the bank board, for the ending quarter 1985, nonetheless, caused the report to be false. The offer, the following is the complete agreement between the Department of Justice and John Smith in which Mr. Smith agrees to enter a plea of guilty to a federal criminal violation and to cooperate with law enforcement personnel in the Northern District of Texas Federal Grand Jury investigation and any trials involving Vernon Savings and Loan and other institutions. Mr. Smith will waive indictment and plead guilty to an information charging him with a violation of uh, 18 USC. The information will charge Mr. Smith with false statement not under oath and connect with Vernon's monthly or quarterly report to the Federal Home Loan Bank Board for the period ending December 31, 1985. And that's a report I had nothing to do with in terms of its preparation or okay. its submission to the government. Mr. Smith will cooperate with the Department of Justice and agents of the Federal Bureau of Investigation and the Internal Revenue Service in criminal investigations and criminal trials concerning his employment at Vernon. Specifically, Mr. Smith will make himself available for interviews, grand jury testimony, and possible hearings and trials. Mr. Smith will also cooperate with agents at the Federal Home Loan Bank Board and the Federal Savings and Loan Insurance Corporation including attorneys representing said agencies. Also known as the requirement to cooperate with the bank board and the FSLIC, the Department of Justice will make known to the court at the time of sentencing, the extent of Mr. Smith's cooperation. After the above plea of guilty, my cooperation with the Department of Justice over the next seven months was critical in the determination of my sentence. Steve and I understood the importance of this crucial period of time, and there were a number of things that we began to work on. My part was to give the Justice Department everything I could, and then some. My cooperation with personnel from all federal agency, requesting interviews and information sessions would be of great significance. Steve was a great, my, Steve, my lawyer, who saved me, Steve was a great communicator and proved himself to be so time and time again. His skillfulness of keeping all those involved aware and up to date was amazing. In analyzing the mission and the mission response, he quickly identified the serious impact of the criminal code. It has a scoring and sentencing guidelines. Steve's ability to change gears from civil the criminal was a saving grace. Quietly working in the background without disturbing me about what he was facing allowed me to confidently pursue and perform my roles. We both had specific goals in a limited amount of time 
before my sentence would be rendered. Mine was the job of trying to stay out of prison. He was keeping me, his was keeping me out of prison. The month following my guilty plea, Steve began to work in earnest with the US probation office as they would be the one to score and recommend sentences according to the guidelines. He was surprised at the misconstrued view of my criminal offense held by my pretrial probation, probation officer. His first letter to her was in March. He strenuously argued that the pre-sentence report did not adequately or accurately reflect the underlying offense. I was charged with a reporting violation, not with the improper disbursement of Vernon Savings funds and did not cause any direct loss of any funds. In April, Steve sent a request to the probation officer via my, sorry, probation office, via my probation officer that my sentence be recategorized to a lesser one based on the prosecution's own statements as to what had happened with regards to the loan payments made on the DRPI drippy properties. As late as August 1988, only six weeks before my day of sentencing, my pretrial probation officer still thought she needed to grade my offense under chapter three, theft and fraud offenses as a category six offense. After receiving notice of this, Steve went to the Justice Department prosecuting attorneys a request for assistance, asking for their confirmation that they had no problem with the lesser offensive categorization. Steve had both hands full as he dealt with the difficulty of the federal criminal code and the mistakes being made by my pretrial probation officer. How could they continue getting it wrong? Did they always choose the worst interpretations for everyone subject to the criminal code or was it just me? Don't answer the last one. If it's going to go wrong, it's me. If it's always screwed up, it's mine. But that's the way it's always been. I've always dealt the most difficult, never the easiest. I surmised it must be preparation for the future, more training for the next unknown task waiting around a karmic corner. And there you go. And look, through this process, is your attorney the big thing that helped you, I guess, get off this, get off it finally, being able to be, I guess, free from that? Would you help, your attorney really helped you not go to jail? Absolutely. He was a godsend. It was a, um, it was it was, it was critical what he did, what he did. And uh, he, he communicated so well with the, uh, with the FBI agents. And of course, the FBI agents, they wanted me. They wanted me in trials uh, as a witness for the government. Uh, but this uh, probation officer was a real, uh, I don't know, a vicious woman. Um, that we'll get on a little more of that in another chapter. When actually she visited at the at her house, um, but she was she didn't want to listen to anything other than what she wanted to interpret. So she was like a grade a grade M doing work for grade B way down the alphabet. Wow! But thank goodness you had that. But then it's amazing to know the attorney did not help you. Your attorney didn't help you get the presidential pardon. Didn't help you finally for the 
them to say they were wrong. That was years after he died, right? No. Um, I was being sentenced just one month away from this particular chapter. No, no, meaning like later on in the book, we're going to find out before, when, before you get the presidential pardon, your attorney passed away before you got a presidential pardon, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah he, Steve died, um, gosh, he died uh, t- t- 10 years later, I think, eight or 10 years later. Oh, wow. Okay. And so I guess the greatest lesson learned in all this process is just to stay the course, right, John, when, when things look really grim, to stay the course. Yeah. There, and I kept telling myself, this is preparation for something else down the road. This is preparation for something needed that I'm going to provide. And I've done that in a number of different ways since then over the last 30 years. Okay. So people can listen to your show uh, at searchingforintegrity.com. They can purchase the book at embracingthebiz.com. You have really good guests every week on Searching for Integrity. That's nationally syndicated radio show, plus also podcast. So people just got to go out and search it and find it. Right, John? That's it. That's uh, yeah. It's and that's that. Uh, I got to tell you, that's not easy. You know, everybody says they have integrity, but when it comes down to being, you know, uh, measured, it they they often fail the test. Exactly, but they can find it and all that stuff in those places. And also, you can watch this episode either video or audio uh, by going out and checking out Neil Haley as well. So appreciate it, John, for uh, stopping sure. by. It was a great simulcast, and talk soon. All right, that was searching for integrity, embracing the abyss. And the Neil Haley Show. Take care, guys. Hi, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of the Neil Haley Show and Freedom from Addiction, Truth Just Below the Surface. And I'm excited to welcome to the program, Reverend Wynn Henderson, MD. Wynn, how are you? I'm doing good this morning. Uh, it's uh, great to have you and uh, Dr. Mark Hayden on this program today, which will be simulcast all over the United States. Uh, Dr. Hayden is a medical doctor, a natural immunity investigated COVID researcher, and has been on this program multiple times in the past with all kinds of information that you need to know about. So go to my podcast, uh, www.freedomfromaddiction.libson.com. No spaces, no capitals, and spelling Libson. L-I-B is in boy, S-Y-N. And um, go to the archives and listen to all of his programs, and you'll be glad that you did. Our breaking news this morning is that Merck, a pharmaceutical company, has um, said that they have a new antiviral uh, drug uh, that shows a 50% decrease in hospitalizations and deaths, which they are wanting to market to the country under an emergency use authorization. And um, as a outpatient, this is great, but it's not nearly the close to 100% uh, success rate that my research indicated early on during the pandemic for hydroxychloroquine, which was close to a 100% um, decrease in hospitalizations and death. And more recently, uh, ivermectin, which is also safe, proven, and effective. It has been um, okayed by the FDA for a number of years for 
other conditions. And uh, it has been used off-label by a lot of medical doctors, uh, but it is still being hindered by these reports about um, people taking the veterinarian horse medicine in place of standardized uh, human medicine to try to scare people. So we're going to get into that. Uh, Mark, it's nice to have you on the program today. Uh, make a comment about your research on natural immunity uh, and its, um, its effects on uh, helping and it's decreasing the need for these um, um, mRNA shots and also about the other two treatments. Yes. Originally when coronavirus came through, what was unique was that there was no prior exposure to an aerosolized coronavirus. Now, how the aerosolized coronavirus actually appeared, you really can't go there. You can't figure it out. You know, it's like the JFK assassination. 50 years from now, people still debate it. But we know from common sense, you can't develop learning about anything unless you have exposure. Of course, what we want is an exposure where we don't get injured. When we meet somebody that's new or different or, and we don't know whether they're a friend or an enemy, we try to meet them in a situation where we're not harmed. And the body actually had a way of doing that. And that's called our intestinal tract. Most of, almost all of the receptors that are in our lungs on the surface of our cells of our pneumocytes are also receptors in our intestinal tract. So our intestines actually are able to receive the virus, multiply it, grow it in our intestines, study it and make antibodies. The, the uh, U.S. started a measuring the amount that would grow out in the septic systems. And what they found is, is that early, early this year, the amount that was in the septic systems peaked. And that was happening because people were getting exposed and it was growing in their intestinal tracts. They were getting exposure and they would develop immune learning. Now in Missouri, and we talked about this on your show three or four months ago, I believe, that when Delta showed up, you could actually see when it spread across the state of Missouri. And there were at least 3 million people that had no vaccination status whatsoever. Those 3 million people that had no vaccination status, less than 5% of them actually probably either had ivermectin or even um, uh, hydroxychloroquine. They didn't have any unusual treatments. 
But the death rate of those people on a new highly transmissible variant, if they had no exposure and no immunity, should have been about 1%. 1% of 3 million people is 30,000 dead. After, after 90 days, virtually everybody had inhaled some, at least some Delta variant in Missouri. And yet the deaths were less than 1,500, which was about 5%. So 95% of the people had achieved some level of enhanced immune protection, even though these people were never vaccinated. So what really happened was, is that people in the prior waves had been exhaling. It had gotten in the food. It gotten on the knives and the forks. Their intestinal tracts had seen it in a prior wave or, or during that wave, and they had developed an immune response. And so the death rate was very, quite, quite low, extremely low. Now, one of the things it, that actually shows is in the Delta wave variant, if you looked in the stool systems, and we did this on your program, I think, the, the overall numbers of, of virus in the stool system, in the septic system was very low because even compared to prior waves, and that is because the intestines had already encountered it. So what we have is a situation in the United States where the vast majority of people already have developed some level of immunity. Now, immune levels vary. Everything that you do takes energy. And even when our bodies, when our bodies produce immunoglobulins, uh, antibodies, and do all these reactions, all those reactions take energy, and we have to eat food for energy. Your body tries to conserve, and your body realizes that the amount of resources it shifts to a new infection is based on the load that it perceives in the environment. One thing that this coronavirus epidemic should have taught us is it how sophisticated, how subtle, and how well-developed the human immune system is. You can't accurately measure immunity based on serum antibodies. It can't be boiled down to one expression. One of the things that happened with the vaccines, you remember when, when they came out with the vaccines and they said, hey, guess what? We've injected them in people and now we have serum antibodies. Yay, yay, yay. Everything is gonna be solved now because we have serum antibodies in the, in the people we injected. And people, they let people get on TV and say, guess what? You get your vaccination, you're not gonna wear a mask. How long did it take people when to find out that even when you got your vaccination, it grows all in your mouth and you can still spread it? How, how long did that take? Not very long. Do you remember when last year, you and me and Neil were on your show and we were talking last year 
that there would not be a mucosal protection and that people would still transmit. Do you remember that? Yes. Hmm. You know, they didn't invite any of us to the Today Show. They didn't invite us to speak to Congress. If we understood that, then they must have understood that at the head of the CDC. And yet they didn't inform people. Of course, there's no liability there. One of the things that has happened in this pandemic that you should be, here's what you should be afraid of. The word emergency. When your government- Hi everyone and welcome to Rob Roselli's show. I'm excited to welcome the program. Rob Roselli, Rob, what's going on? How are you? Hey Neil, how you doing? And thanks for having me again. Absolutely. What we've been talking, Mystery Babylon. Let's continue. Okay. So basically, he's trying to draw this in parallel to current events. And one can see the United States as being have a tenuous grip on its former leadership of the free world, as we discussed last week. Review the past few weeks you know we went through and we went through the candidates of mystery babylon you know the others being the catholic church in rome the vatican basically uh saudi arabia uh the, the original babylon over in iraq none of them quite fit the bill like new york city and, and maybe even the united states as a whole for the identity of mystery babylon is becoming more and more obvious we, we talked about that a little bit last week and then just to see the current events unfolding the way they are, the way the United States pulled out of Afghanistan, the way we're losing allies left and right all over the all over the world, people are really starting to hate the United States. You can see that with Joe Biden or whoever it is that is running this country, Barack Obama through Joe Biden running the country that our allies, our former allies, are starting to align with Russia and therefore China based on the way we deserted NATO and Afghanistan and, and other things going on. And this debt bomb called the Federal Reserve System and the World Bank that we've been exporting to the world for decades, that's about to explode. Okay, so there's all kinds of issues. There's all kinds of reasons to believe the United States is the center of attention right now in the world. And therefore, the identity of Bishop Babylon has to be the United States. There's, there's just no other, no other candidate. And don't forget, I have three, there's three basic uh, principles which people must keep in mind. I believe that I uh, summarize basically that the Bible is the core of the quote conspiracy. You can't interpret things correctly. And eventually it'll come to a dead end if you don't if you don't have the Bible as your as the core of the conspiracy. Okay. Number two, Israel are not God's chosen people, at least any longer. I'm not saying that to be anti Israel. I'm actually very pro Israel and, and what they're doing and, and, and how they live in a very and U.S. position over there in the Middle East, and 
a tremendous amount of respect for them, just from a biblical standpoint. That Israel, Israel, the New Testament is actually the church, which are actually Christian believers. That's not to say Israel won't be rescued in the end, and I believe it will, but that's subject for another day. Okay. So basically, that's. And then the accident, and then this. Third principle is that there's no doubt that the United States and New York City in particular is the mystery Babylon of Revelation 17 and 18. So you need to keep those three things in mind as we go through this interpretation here. Now, if you read up, we'll go through line by line. So basically what happens in Revelation 17 is that the wrath of God has just been unleashed in Revelation 16, and then at the end of the chapter, Babylon comes to God's attention. And John, who wrote Revelation, who's partly in heaven and partly on earth, is wondering about this this whore sitting on this on this beast. We'll go to verse seven. And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. Okay, so John's in wondering. So let's go back to verse 1, verses 1 and 2, and I'll read those real quick. And there came out of the... And there came out of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me, saying... Come hither, I will show thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with her fornication. So you can see right there, this is not a literal drunkenness, obviously. Okay. So you can see right there that this is this entity or this nation sits at the center of the earth. It's a center of attention on the earth, and and, and again, what what nation better fits that bill than the United States? Okay, and drunkenness implies um, that goes back to the Greek god Dionysus or Roman god Bacchus. Okay, the god of revelry and wine. That's really what they're talking about there. Okay, and that's that subject for another day. But that's basically the drunkenness they're referring to. They're not saying the entire world had a big beer party and they're all drunk. That's not what that's saying. Okay. Oh. And then waters. The, the, the judgment of the horse sits on many waters. Now water has has all kinds of physical healing healing powers, all kinds of symbolism, okay? And one of it is the whore goddess Isis, okay, and the Nile River in Egypt, okay, that's that was considered healing waters, okay, that's that's what it's referring to. It's more of a new age interpretation of, of what the waters are. Okay, so the waters and it implies birth. Okay, that's the more the mythological symbolism of water. Okay, so she's not literally sitting in the ocean. That's basically, and I'm trying to trying to keep this conversation focused, but just can give brief background as we go through it. But that's basically what that implies. Okay, so the whore goddess is sitting on her healing substance, which is 
which is water. Now, if you want, we'll continue. Okay, continuing. If one wants to control the entire population and make from himself paradise earth, okay, or the great reset, we're calling this the great reset right now. Globalism or international, it's basically globalism or international slavery for the rest of us, okay. But basically, what's happening here is that. God has been giving the, the initial interpretation of what the great what the great whore goddess is. Okay, so we've got her sitting on this beast. But he's going back. Now he's going back verses three to five, okay? Now the angel, so he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting upon a scarlet covered beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead, the name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. Okay, so it's the great, so it's a great whore. Okay, again, this is symbolic of the Greek goddess Isis, which morphed into all kinds of goddesses of of the ancient world, you know, the, the Roman the Roman and the Greek Diana and Artemis. Okay, Luna. Okay, the goddess Luna, some symbolic of the moon. But basically in, in ancient mythology you had a you had a god and you had a goddess. And this is most the most prevalent example of this is Isis and Osiris in ancient Egypt and Isis being the whore goddess. Okay, who gave birth to false religion and, and basically all the abominations of the earth, just like it says here. So Mystery Babylon, the great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth in all caps. Okay. So basically, it's a very big deal. All of a sudden, you're, you know, you're writing in, you know, in, in normal English and then all of a sudden this, that, that term, Mystery Babylon, the Great, the Mother of Harlots and Abominations of Earth is in all caps. So it's a very big deal. Um, and by the way, it may help if people have their, their Bibles open and they go back and they refer to them or read through Revelation 17 and 18. It would help to be, help you get, get through this interpretation. But anyway, Wow, Rob. You have scarlet and purple. So what you're basically saying is that through you're looking at Mystery Babylon, the United States is Mystery Babylon. Yeah, and I'm just, this is, I'm going through line by line, Revelation 17 and 18, and, and, and it's building the case that, you know, and, and in the background, you have to have a little bit of a background in mythology to understand this. This is what, this is what a lot of people miss. I'm trying to keep the conversation as tight as possible without going off on too many tangents. But um, basically, God is God is basically very angry with this mystery Babylon, whoever it is, i.e., New York City and the United States. And that's what this all caps is is is, is trying to imply. 
Now, if you're interested in the word great, Mystery Babylon the Great. Now, when I when I wrote the theory of evolution, you know, great society of the undead, I put great in quotes, and there was a reason for that. It's because I came up with the with the word great. Is in great society of the United States. Okay. Basically, in the Great War and the Great Depression, and there's great this, and, and then over at Lucifer's Trust, Lucifer's Publishing Company, where they worship the devil as part of the United Nations, and I mean that literally. They have something called the Great Plan for the World, okay, which I believe is one and the same with the Great Reset that you've been hearing about recently. Okay, so you have this word great, and the word great is what I found out as a symbol for the, the beast of revelation himself. So these people literally worship the beast of revelation. That's I know that's a lot to handle, but that's just take my word for it. And you can read about that in, in, my, in my first book, They Live, Great Society of the Undead, but the word great has a very, very evil connotations to it. Again, it's symbolic from the it's symbolic for the devil. You just have to take my word for it unless you, you go back and you read. That's all covered in great society. You know, they live great society, the undead. All right. So basically, well, wow, this is. So what, what, I guess we can end it there. I mean, we've, we've built the background. We've made it to verse five. Yeah, Revelation and then, 17 and 18. We'll pick it back up next week. So they definitely got to look at all that stuff more deeply and see specifically enough the, the what you're talking about the lines by reading your books. So where's the best place they can go? That's boxofsunglasses.com. All the books are available there. And the God Simple Salvation Plan, which is posted on top of the website, that's probably the most important thing right now. If, if you get nothing else out of the show, and I know it's it a little co complicated, it might be hard to follow. I'll do my best that I can, but God Simple Salvation Plan is there. And then the books are available, and, and the links are all there, and you can, you can click through and get them right off the website, boxofsunglasses.com. All right, Rob. Appreciate it. it. All right. Take care, man. All right, guys. Talk to you next week. All right. Talk to you next week. That was the Rob Rosselli Show, guys. Take care.